Today on Blue 58, a new collective bargaining agreement seems to be all but done. Let's take a look at how it could affect the playoffs. Then we take your questions about the state of the Packers roster before free agency begins. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Great stuff lined up for you today. want to ask before we get started, if you like this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend. That's what we're going to be asking you to do from now on as far as supporting the show. Um, we may ask you for other things. I, I won't rule that out, but uh, that's the main thing that I want to ask you to do. If you like what we're doing here, share it with somebody you think would enjoy it. Uh, I want to grow the audience here a little bit, and that, I think, is one of the best ways to go about it. So if you like the show, uh, share it with somebody, and uh, we'll see if they like it as well. I want to start today first by by saying, if you can't hear it already, uh, my cold has not gone away. So apologies for that. We will uh, try to get through this without making it too um, out of the ordinary audio quality wise. But I want to start with the apparent collective bargaining agreement. There seems to be a deal tentatively in place. As of when I'm recording this, the, the owners have voted to ratify the new collective bargaining agreement. And uh, they're going to be putting it to the players next. They'll have to vote to ratify that, and then it will go to a simple vote, just up or down between the two parties. Um, Early on, it just looks like this is on the way towards being done, and there's a few aspects of it that are are interesting. The, The firmest, most concrete one that we've seen so far seems to be changes to how the playoffs work. Early on, or early indications would seem to be that this new collective bargaining agreement would add another team to the playoffs in each conference. So seven teams in the playoffs in the AFC and NFC, as opposed to just the six. That is just a small part of the labor picture, but it is a step towards adding more games to the schedule and therefore more revenue which some of which would end up with the players, which I think is is a big goal for the players in this round of of, um, collective bargaining. I have some seriously mixed feelings about changing the playoffs. I wanted to talk through a couple of those. First, and this is kind of a broad media thing, people need to stop making cases for this move by saying expanding the playoffs was inevitable. I've seen this pop up in headlines, in the bodies of articles about this. Reporters, analysts, take-havers about football have all characterized this move as inevitable. Wow, the playoffs were always going to expand. No, that's not true. This was not inevitable. Inevitable things are things that you have no choice about. It is inevitable that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. They could have chosen not to do this. They could have just said, you know what, we're good with how the playoffs are. But by framing it as inevitable, you build in some support for a thing that was motivated, at least in part, by the desire to make more money. And this is a business, so the desire to make more money is not necessarily a bad or not understandable one, but it's something that we should factor in here. This was not inevitable. I think the best recent example of uh, people using this phrase in sports is one I've referred to several times. Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, from the moment he took over for David Stern, started saying that advertising on NBA team uniforms was inevitable. 
It's inevitable. It's something that's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And lo and behold, now NBA teams sell ad space on their jerseys. Well, it wasn't inevitable. It wasn't. David Stern, for his entire tenure as commissioner, drew a line in the sand and said, absolutely not. There will be no advertising on NBA uniforms. In fact, he didn't even allow, in most cases, uh, manufacturer logos on uniforms. He said, no, it's not going to happen. When did it become inevitable then? Well, it became inevitable when they got a new commissioner in there who was willing to sell ad space on uniforms. It's the same thing with the NFL playoffs. This was not an inevitable change. It's just something that they wanted to do. So let's just get that out of the way right away. Secondly, I am generally of the opinion that it should be hard to get into the playoffs. And as a result, I will broadly oppose anything that could be perceived as watering down the playoffs. And by definition, this is watering down the playoffs. And I am not swayed by the arguments that says, well, they they watered them down before. They added teams to the playoffs. In fact, the, the playoffs at all are a watering down of the system. I saw that in one article today because they used to just have the champion decided by who knows what esoteric means. And then they added one uh, championship game after the end of the season. And then they've slowly expanded the playoffs since then too. No, it, it's been this way. It's been 12 teams for almost 30 years now. This is a different kind of watering things down, especially if you're pairing this with a 17-game schedule, which seems to be a possibility too. And furthermore, just saying that they've done watering down of the playoffs in the past doesn't mean that was a good idea either. Okay? It could be that the optimum number of playoff teams is eight or four, right? I'm not saying that that is, but it could be. Watering down is watering down is watering down. All of it is watering down. I am opposed to stuff that that waters things down unnecessarily. Having 12 teams make it out of a 32-team league seemed like a pretty good number to me. Anything other than that does seem like watering it down a little bit. But finally... If you are going to expand the playoffs, if that is something that you want to do, and I've kind of laid out why that is okay. If that's something that you want to do, fine, fine, that's that's okay. If that's something that you want to do, if you are going to expand the playoffs, this seems like a pretty okay way to do it. It does dilute the playoffs a little bit, but not that much. You're not jumping to 16 teams in the playoffs. You're not jumping to half the league. And by expanding by just one team per conference, I think you're making it so that first round by matters even more. Just look at the permutations that could have shaken out with the Packers in their first round by in the playoffs this past year, the two seed. They could have ended up like all over the map, just being the two seed or the, the four seed or three seed or something like that. Now this matters even more. That race for the top spot matters. And I think that's a good thing. So you're adding a little bit of incentive there too, even as you broaden the pool. And I guess I'm sympathetic to the idea that it may not be watering down the pool that much too. So if we're going to expand the playoffs, 
even if it isn't inevitable. This seems like a pretty okay way to go about it. And I'm interested to see, over the life of this 10-year collective bargaining agreement, how many interesting situations we end up with as a result of this expansion. Now for something completely different. We have just recently completed our position-by-position review of the 2019 Packers, and within each of those discussions, we took some time to talk about potential free agent acquisitions and, and players we may be interested in in the Packers acquiring over the course of this offseason. I wanted to take a second and just kind of collect a few of those questions and talk through them. Your thoughts about what the Packers could do in free agency, via trade, whatever. So we have a few of your questions here. We'll talk through those. And then I want to offer up what I think could kind of be a model for a productive offseason for the Packers. So first, your questions. James asks via email, one name I haven't heard much about in free agency inside linebacker discussions is Darren Lee or Deron Lee. As a draft enthusiast, I remember having high hopes that the Packers might get him in the 2016 draft. He has sideline to sideline speed and was highly rated for his coverage potential. He hasn't exactly lived up to the first round billing, but do you see him as a potential target for the Packers with the athleticism and pedigree despite underwhelming production through his rookie contract? It seems like he could be a good scheme fit with uh, with the Packers, and I can't imagine he'd be cost prohibitive given his level or his lack, excuse me, of high level production thus far. It is a good question, I think, and I think Deron Lee is an interesting prospect. There is some good and bad to him as as a potential target in free agency. The good is all the stuff that you you'd be interested in adding, at least from a a measurables perspective. He's athletic as heck. Ran a four four seven coming out. Uh, pretty good, but not great agility numbers. Overall, his relative athletic score was 8.54, and that's that figure we looked at for all of the inside linebacker prospects. That would be the highest among all the inside linebackers we've looked at by a fairly wide margin. He's also still got pretty good size at 6'1", kind of mid-230s range. The bad is still pretty disappointing. Uh, He was exploited fairly regularly in coverage to the point that he couldn't really get on the field all that regularly this season in Kansas City. Even in limited reps this year, it seems like opposing passers found a way to find him in coverage. Uh, Opposing quarterbacks completed every pass they threw his direction this season, 15 for 15 on targets. He also missed almost 15% of his tackle attempts this year. That is high for a linebacker. Overall, He still looks a little bit like a project player. And I think the Packers already kind of have one of those in Oren Burks. So I think when it comes to the question of Oren Burks, Deron Lee, or somebody else, I think it's probably Burks, and then they'll try to add in some talent elsewhere. Interesting prospect, though, and you got to like his athleticism. Duke asks a three-pack of questions, so we'll get to each of those in order here. Uh, First, is Tyler Irvin the return man of the Packers' future, or will they draft someone? I think as far as Tyler Irvin goes, the present is really the only question. That's not a a big question as to his future with the Packers, at least not long-term future, beyond 2020, I'm thinking. At present, I think he is both their return man and number three running back. And really, I think it's kind of the latter of those two that leads the former. The Packers seem to think he can contribute on offense, which I think kind of becomes his primary use, kind of a gadget player and complement to Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams. 
that he can return punts and kicks is almost a bonus. I think if if it comes down to it, you'd rather have a guy who's contributing regularly on offense than a guy who's maybe going to get one or two real opportunities to contribute in the return game. Future gets a little bit tricky. Running backs are so fungible anyway. It's kind of a year-to-year thing out of any, but outside of any guys that you, you've drafted and have control over for three or four years. I don't think you really worry about that with Tyler Irvin. I think you say, we can get him back for this year and then keep churning your running back position from there. As far as return stuff goes, just figure out a guy who isn't going to screw it up for you. That's what the Packers had for a long time uh, in Trevor Davis, so he did screw it up for them a few times too. Um Ideally, you just want a guy who's not going to be a negative as much as anything. Uh, If he adds any value, that's kind of a bonus, and I think that's what they have in Tyler Irvin. Duke also asks about Jared Veldheer. He says, does Veldheer want to play another season if Brian Bulanga becomes a cap casualty? My assumption is that Jared Veldheer wants to play another season. Whether he wants to play in Green Bay or somewhere else is still an open question. Should the Packers want him back, though? There, I get a little bit skeptical. Packers fans have worried about Brian Bulaga being injury-prone for a long time. Well, Veldheer does nothing to alleviate that at all. He only played in two games in the regular season this year, but from 2016 through 2018, he played in just 33 of 48 possible games as a full-time starter. When he was available, he would have been the starter in those situations. In that same time span, Brian Bulaga played in 35 of 48 games. So if you're worried about Brian Bulaga being injury-prone, Jared Veldheer has those same problems. He's also older. He's also bigger, which brings its own set of problems when you're dealing with a big body guy at a high impact position like the offensive line. That could be a little bit of a problem. So if you're looking at Jared Veldheer as a potential starter on your offensive line, I think that is a bit of a fraught proposition. But if you are just looking for him to be a part of your offensive line picture in 2020, maybe not a big part, but a part. I think that's a different conversation and one I'd be willing to have if I'm Brian Gutekunst. I think Veldheer could be that swing tackle that Jason Spriggs never really was, and I'd feel better having him around as the top back, backup left tackle or right tackle than Alex Light or Billy Turner. Plus, if you just look at him as a backup right tackle, he has the added benefit over Billy Turner of not disrupting two positions if he steps in for Bulaga. I've never really understood the idea of really wanting Billy Turner to, to shift out there in the event of Bulaga getting injured because then you've screwed up right guard and right tackle. You potentially have question marks at both spots then. I'd rather find a guy who can actually play tackle and have that be his primary responsibility. Maybe that's Jared Veld here. Truth be told, I think this is a, a situation where the Packers want to be looking to draft a guy Uh, rather than spend money to bring a guy back as a backup. Uh, I do think they should try to bring Brian Bulaga back as a starter, though salary cap stuff does make that a little bit tricky. Still, um, I think he's got to be their primary option at right tackle for right now. Finally, Duke's final question here, which third-round pick will make a significant jump in 2020? Montrevious Adams, Oren Burks, or Jace Sternberger? I think Sternberger is the only answer here. I think uh, Montrevious Adams and Oren Burks have both basically shown us what they are. At the very least, Sternberger is still a work in progress, though there's plenty of reason to wonder what, if anything, he is actually ever going to be for the Packers. As far as I'm concerned, the progress is done for the other two. Oren Burks, 
uh, has had plenty of time to figure out his role as an athletic cover linebacker safety almost hybrid he hasn't been able to do in his two years in Green Bay what Joe Thomas was able to do which was to be a reliable dime linebacker and special teamer I I I don't know what else to say on Oren Burks at this point um, he has had every opportunity. Sure, there's been some injuries there, but he can't even get on the field. And the same is basically true of Montrevious Adams. Yes, there was some injury stuff in his rookie season, but this past year, he got all the hype from Mike Pettin, and it just never amounted to anything. Sternberger, I think, is at least early enough in his development cycle where he could still grow a little bit, too. He's also at a position where it seems like he'll have an opportunity to figure things out a little bit more slowly. The Packers will use him as a blocker, uh, figure out some packages where he can get on the field as a receiver. It seems like Oren Burks and Montrevious Adams have had that same opportunity and missed it. If anybody is going to develop out of this three, I think it is Jace Sternberger. Finally, Brad asks, I know you weren't real high on to Jay Sharp, but I think he could be an underrated pickup. He looked like a steal coming out of college, but has had bad QB play. Might he blossom with Rodgers? Any other wide receivers who look good from past drafts who have fallen out of favor for some reason? Well, I think Brad does kind of raise a fair point there. I think there's always a chance that a guy could do better with better quarterback play. And that's basically the big selling point on Robbie Anderson, right? He's had bad quarterbacks in New York, and he's still been relatively productive. What he could, what could he do with an even better quarterback? And I think I am willing to be wrong on to Jay Sharp, but his production so far has just left me a little bit cold. But as far as other wide receivers go, let's kind of back up and take a wider look for a second. I think even if Tajay Sharp in particular isn't a player that I'd be interested in, I think there's a case to be made that he represents the overall kind of player the Packers could be or should be looking for if they decide to go to the wide receiver store in free agency. He's relatively young, relatively healthy. He's got some good physical attributes, though his overall athletic profile does leave something to be desired. And he's got productivity that you can project. He did this much playing this amount of snaps. What could he do with more opportunities? So here are a couple other names to consider within that mold. Brashad Perriman is one that a couple people have brought up with me, and I've kind of come around on him a little bit, though I do think he's probably going to be fairly expensive. 6'2", mid-2-teens or so, 212, 215, good athlete. He has a 9.95 relative athletic score, ran a 4.2640. That's real, legit speed. He had a big year in a downfield attacking system, playing for Bruce Arians in Tampa this past year. He played on a one-year, $4 million contract last year, and I think a good year from him is probably going to push his price tag probably to at least two and a half times that maybe in the $10 million a year range. Who knows? Uh, past inconsistency might push that price down a little bit, but he still could be uh, fairly expensive. So I wouldn't count on him being in the Packers' price range, but he is the sort, I think, again, of player they should be looking for, kind of in the broad category. Still young, still athletic, productivity you can project. Kind of in the same vein, though not as young, not as athletic, and not as productive, is Paul Richardson, who played this last season in Washington and the season before, I believe, as well. A uh, bit smaller than uh, than Perriman, and I think in general smaller than what I'd be looking for uh, from a number two wide receiver opposite Devontae Adams. At six foot, 180 pounds, a little bit on the smaller side there, but a pretty good athlete. 440 or 4'4 in the 40, 
a 7.62 relative athletic score. Not outstanding, but still pretty good. Hasn't been super productive, though, and hasn't been terribly reliable injury-wise. But he has had proven success in the NFL. I think he would know what you were getting here. And I think he'd be an upgrade over somebody like Geronimo Allison. Honestly, he's probably about what the most optimistic people thought Ryan Grant would be. Uh, Athletic, quick little guy. Just going to be a little bit of a different profile physically from the other from the other receivers that you got. So those are a couple names that I would keep in mind, at least if if not in particular as archetypes for what the Packers could be looking for at wide receivers should they go the free agent route. So having reviewed every position group, looked over those free agency options, let's put a bow on this Packers roster discussion by looking ahead to what an improved Packers roster could look like. I don't want to name names here, but I would like to talk about how the Packers should allocate their resources. First, let's talk about the needs that we see here. Here's what I see for the Packers, ranked by order of importance. I think the the Packers' needs fall into three tiers. Uh, Positions that need immediate improvement, positions where you need to add talent to the mix, but failing to add talent won't necessarily leave a hole, and then nice to have. Not a pressing need, but it wouldn't help to, uh, or would help to, to add some bodies there too. That top tier, the tier that needs immediate improvement, includes wide receiver and inside linebacker. That next tier, need to add talent to the mix, but failing won't leave you with a big hole, includes defensive line, offensive line, and tight end. And then the nice to have tier would be cornerback and running back. Heading into this offseason, the Packers have about $23 million in cap space and eight draft picks. Three of them fall in the top 100. There could be some compensatory picks there, but I'm not really holding my breath. So how do you allocate those resources to fill those holes as effectively as possible? I think this question kind of hinges on what happens with Brian Bulaga. Because if you lose Bulaga in free agency, I think that bumps up offensive line almost to that needs immediate improvement level. Because the Packers are going to have to do something on the offensive line. They need a right tackle. And even if they would shift Billy Turner out to right tackle, I still think you need more bodies than on the offensive line. And that that is kind of irrespective of what you think about Lucas Patrick, who would be your presumed starter in at right guard, at least early on, assuming you don't add more talent there. I'm going to operate under the assumption that they replace or that they they keep Brian Bulaga and don't have to replace him immediately. So starting with free agency, I would pick your budget and then get a kind of second or third wide receiver, a tight end, or a sidekick linebacker. So a sidekick linebacker would be somebody who could approximate what B.J. Goodson can do for you. I don't think you're going to want to really spend big on an offensive lineman or even a wide receiver or tight end for that matter. But if you can find a receiver or tight end that fits your budget, in addition to bringing back Brian Bulaga, I think you got to go for it. So maybe somebody like a Brashad Perryman, Maybe the 2020 version of Perryman, who signs a one-year, $4 million contract, is the way you want to go at receiver. Or if you could do something similar at tight end. 
The Packers got a relatively distressed asset in Jared Cook when they signed him a few years back. If they could get a tight end at a similar price, I think that'd be a good way to go. Because I think you do want to add some talent to that mix. In the draft, I think I'd start in the first round by getting a wide receiver or inside linebacker, whichever is better. Whichever you feel the best about, draft that at 30. And then get the opposite of that with your second round pick. It is supposedly a deep wide receiver class. And so if you feel better about taking an inside linebacker in the first round, knowing that you can get a receiver later, do that. If you get to your second round pick and there isn't a wide receiver or inside linebacker that you like, then I think you almost got to take an offensive lineman. Finally, with that third top 100 pick, I would pick either an offensive lineman or a tight end. Probably the offensive lineman. I think you really have to invest into that offensive line each and every year. You've got to constantly be adding talent to that pool. And the Packers really haven't spent super highly on the offensive line without, with the exception of Elton Jenkins in an effective way in quite a while. Prior to Elton Jenkins, what was it? Jason Spriggs and Derek Sherrod as far as top-end offensive linemen? That's not a great track record. The Packers are going to need more help there sooner than later. Brian Bulaga is the free agent this year, but in the not-too-distant future, you've got questions on David Bakhtiari and Corey Lindsley. Offensive line is always going to be an issue just because of how many people you need to make that tick. So, to recap, pick your budget, then find a wide receiver, tight end, or sidekick linebacker in free agency. Probably not all of those, maybe one, even two of the three. Then get a wide receiver or linebacker in the first round, the opposite of whatever you pick in the first round in the second, and then an offensive lineman or tight end with your third top 100 pick. Beyond that, it's just taking the best available player and going from there. I know it sounds like a simple plan, and it's probably a little bit rosy to expect it to all work out that way, but that's how I would tentatively look to allocate my resources if I was the Packers heading into this offseason. What do you think? How would you plan out your offseason? Let me know in a comment on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you find us. I would love to hear from you. I appreciate you listening in. If you like what you heard today, share this episode with a friend, with a fellow Packers fan. If you think it would help advance the conversation around the Packers, go ahead and share it with someone you think would like it. Because that's going to help us further our mission of helping everybody become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.